War and Peace, Book Thirteen, Chapter Fourteen, read for LibriVox.org by Anna Simon. Through the cross streets of the Khamovniki quarter, the prisoners marched, followed only by their escort and the vehicles and wagons belonging to that escort. But when they reached the supply stores, they came among a huge and closely packed train of artillery mingled with private vehicles. At the bridge, they all halted, waiting for those in front to get across. From the bridge they had a view of endless lines of moving baggage trains before and behind them. To the right, where the Kaluga road turns near Neshkuchny, endless rows of troops and carts stretched away into the distance. These were troops of Bohanest Kool, which had started before any of the others. Behind, along the riverside and across the stone bridge, were Ney's troops and transport, Davao's troops, in whose charge were the prisoners, were crossing the Crimean bridge, and some were already debouching into the Kaluga road. But the baggage trains stretched out so that the last of Bohanis train had not yet got out of Moscow and reached the Kaluga road, when the vanguard of Ney's army was already emerging from the great Ordinka street. When they had crossed the Crimean bridge, the prisoners moved a few steps forward, halted, and again moved on, and from all sides vehicles and men crowded closer and closer together. They advanced the few hundred paces that separated the bridge from the Kaluga road, taking more than an hour to do so, and came out upon the square where the streets of the Transmovskva ward and the Kaluga road converge, and the prisoners, jammed close together, had to stand for some hours at that crossway. From all sides, like the roar of the sea, were heard the rattle of wheels, the tramp of feet, and incessant shouts of anger and abuse. Pierre stood pressed against the wall of a charred house, listening to that noise, which mingled in his imagination with the roll of the drums. To get a better view, several officer prisoners climbed onto the wall of the half-burned house against which Pierre was leaning. "'What crowds! Just look at the crowds! They've loaded goods even on the cannon! Look there! Those are furs!' they exclaimed. "'Just see what the blackguards have looted! There! See what that one has behind in the cart!' Why, those are settings taken from some icons, by heaven! How oh, the rascals! See how that fellow has loaded himself up! He can hardly walk! Good Lord, they've even grabbed those chases! See that fellow there, sitting on the trunks! Heavens, they're fighting! That's right, hit him on the snout! On his snout! Like this, we shan't get away before evening! Look, look there! Why, that must be Napoleon's own! See what horses! and the monograms with a crown. It's like a portable house. That fellow's dropped his sack and doesn't see it. Fighting again. A woman with a baby, and not bad-looking either. Yes, I dare say, that's the way they'll let you pass. Just look, there's no end to it. Russian wenches, by heaven, so they are. In carriages, see how comfortably they've settled themselves. Again, as at the church in Kamovniki, a wave of general curiosity bore all the prisoners forward onto the road, and Pierre, thanks to his stature, saw over the heads of the others what so attracted their curiosity. In three carriages involved among the munition carts, closely squeezed together, sat women with rouged faces, dressed in glaring colours, who were shouting something in shrill voices. From the moment Pierre had recognised the appearance of the mysterious force, nothing had seemed to him strange or dreadful. Neither the corpse smeared with soot for fun, nor these women hurrying away, nor the burned ruins of Moscow. All that he now witnessed scarcely made an impression on him, 
as if his soul, making ready for a hard struggle, refused to receive impressions that might weaken it. The women's vehicles drove by. Behind them came more carts, soldiers, wagons, soldiers, gun carriages, carriages, soldiers, ammunition carts, more soldiers, and now and then women. Pierre did not see the people as individuals, but saw their movement. All these people and horses seemed driven forward by some invisible power. During the hour Pierre watched them, they all came flowing from the different streets with one and the same desire to get on quickly. They all jostled one another, began to grow angry and to fight. White teeth gleamed, brows frowned, ever the same words of abuse flew from side to side, and all the faces bore the same swaggeringly resolute and coldly cruel expression that had struck Pierre that morning on the corporal's face when the drums were beating. It was not till nearly evening that the officer commanding the escort collected his men and with shouts and quarrels forced his way in among the baggage trains, and the prisoners, hemmed in on all sides, emerged onto the Kaluga road. They marched very quickly, without resting, and halted only when the sun began to set. The baggage carts drew up close together, and the men began to prepare for their night's rest. They all appeared angry and dissatisfied. For a long time oaths, angry shouts, and fighting could be heard from all sides. A carriage that followed the escort ran into one of the carts and knocked a hole in it with its pole. Several soldiers ran toward the cart from different sides. Some beat the carriage horses on their heads, turning them aside, others fought among themselves, and Pierre saw that one German was badly wounded on the head by a sword. It seemed that all these men, now that they had stopped amid fields in the chill dusk of the autumn evening, experienced one and the same feeling of unpleasant awakening from the hurry and eagerness to push on that had seized them at the start. Once at a standstill, they all seemed to understand that they did not yet know where they were going, and that much that was painful and difficult awaited them on this journey. During this halt, the escort treated the prisoners even worse than they had done at the start. It was here that the prisoners, for the first time, received horse-flesh for their meat-ration. From the officer down to the lowest soldier, they showed what seemed like personal spite against each of the prisoners, in unexpected contrast to their former friendly relations. This spite increased still more when, on calling over the roll of prisoners, it was found that in the bustle of leaving Moscow one Russian soldier, who had pretended to suffer from colic, had escaped. Pierre saw a Frenchman beat a Russian soldier cruelly for straying too far from the road and heard his friend the captain reprimand and threaten to court-martial a non-commissioned officer on account of the escape of the Russian. To the non-commissioned officer's excuse that the prisoner was ill and could not walk, the officer replied that the order was to shoot those who lagged behind. Pierre felt that that fatal force which had crushed him during the executions, but which he had not felt during his imprisonment, now again controlled his existence. It was terrible, but he felt that in proportion to the efforts of that fatal force to crush him, there grew and strengthened in his soul a power of life independent of it. He ate his supper of buckwheat soup with horse-flesh, and chatted with his comrades. Neither Pierre nor any of the others spoke of what they had seen in Moscow, or of the roughness of their treatment by the French, or of the order to shoot them which had been announced to them. 
as if in reaction against the worsening of their position, they were all particularly animated and gay. They spoke of personal reminiscences, of amusing scenes they had witnessed during the campaign, and avoided all talk of their present situation. The sun had set long since. Bright stars shone out here and there in the sky. A red glow as of a conflagration spread above the horizon from the rising full moon, and that vast red ball swayed strangely in the grey haze. It grew light. The evening was ending, but the night had not yet come. Pierre got up and left his new companions, crossing between the campfires to the other side of the road where he had been told the common soldier prisoners were stationed. He wanted to talk to them. On the road he was stopped by a French sentinel who ordered him back. Pierre turned back, not to his companions by the campfire, but to an unharnessed cart where there was nobody. Tucking his legs under him and dropping his head, he sat down on the cold ground by the wheel of the cart, and remained motionless a long while, sunk in thought. Suddenly he burst out into a fit of his broad, good-natured laughter, so loud that men from various sides turned with surprise to see what this strange and evidently solitary laughter could mean. Ha! 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 laughed Pierre, and he said aloud to himself, "'The soldier did not let me pass. They took me and shut me up. They hold me captive.' What? Me? Me? My immortal soul? Ha! 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 And he laughed till tears started to his eyes. A man got up and came to see what this queer big fellow was laughing at, all by himself. Pierre stopped laughing, got up, went farther away from the inquisitive man, and looked around him. The huge, endless bivouac that had previously resounded with the crackling of campfires and the voices of many men had grown quiet, the red campfires were growing paler and dying down. High up in the light sky hung the full moon. Forests and fields beyond the camp, unseen before, were now visible in the distance, and farther still, beyond those forests and fields, the bright, oscillating, limitless distance lured one to itself. Pierre glanced up at the sky and the twinkling stars in its faraway depths. And all that is me, all that is within me, and it is all I, thought Pierre. And they caught all that and put it into a shed, boarded up with planks. He smiled and went and lay down to sleep beside his companions. End of chapter 14